God, those communists are amazing. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Trim Left This Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Sterling, he, him. And with us again from the Cars and Comrades podcast, we have Connor, he, him. Brandon, he, him. And Brian, he, him. And we're going to continue our series on Walter Ruther. Um, so I guess this will be part four. And uh, yeah, so I will just hand it over to Connor again, and we can pick up where we left off on the last episode. Okay, so uh, quick recap. Where we were, we kind of introduced our characters, our enemies, all that good stuff. Walter, uh, socialist organizer, of later president of the UAW, and he pioneered a lot of the strike strategies that were used in the late 1930s to unionize uh, the big three, Ford, Chrysler, and uh, GM. So kind of at the point in the story we're at now, they have managed to secure union recognition and contracts with GM and Chrysler. During World War II in 1941, they eventually got the contract with Ford as well. So this was, you know, a huge credit to Walter and Victor Ruther, who had a real strategy for getting these strikes done and getting actual real gains for working people at the time, both in and out of the union, because, of course, what happens with the labor movement affects, essentially, workers throughout the country. Right. Now, of course, a lot of that success does come from the communists that were also in the union, who, you know... Got ran out of the union by Walter Ruther, yeah, yeah, I'm following you. We'll we'll be talking we'll be talking about that much more today, but you know a, a lot of that success is from communist organizers as well. So it was kind of Walter had a big part to play. Uh, of course, so did the communists. Although I feel like as the the saying kind of goes, history is written by the winners. So we're gonna hear more about Walter is mm-hmm. um, what it comes down to. Okay, so after significant wins uh, at both GM and Chrysler. Uh, as well as, at this point, a huge blow to Ford's public image um, after the Battle of the Overpass, which was, of course, where the Ford Company thugs beat up Walter Ruther and some other UAW organizers and some women from the Women's Auxiliary who were there. The other guy who was there was uh, Richard Finkelstein, uh, and he was actually leading that effort. So, I mean, he was up in UAW leadership as well. Uh, So the two of them were roughed up pretty good by Ford Company thugs. And this, you know, then they lied about the whole situation. And of course, photos came out later because there was a journalist who managed to sneak away with negatives of of the events. Uh, And so Ford looked really, really shitty. So at this point, we're going to kind of take a step back to April of 1938. So this is after that incident, but before Ford was actually unionized in 1941. The reason we're taking a step back is this is getting into sort of the risks of union organizing back in the 20th century. So I'll rag on Walter for not being radical enough or giving into anti-communist, you know, bullshit. But you can't really say the guy was not putting his shit on the line. I mean, his life, the lives of his family, he made some fucking enemies. So... We're going to talk about a little bit of this. So going back in April 1938, two masked gunmen forced their way into Ruther's Detroit home during a party and attempted to abduct him. While they were trying to beat Ruther into submission, one guest managed to flee and summon help. The assailants were eventually arrested and their trial proved to be a sham. Um, So a lot of this is talked about by uh, our our wonderful friend, Michael Parenti, in his kind of 
yeah. So this is where he was talking about a lot of what happened here. Um, right. And other documentaries actually didn't even touch on this subject, weirdly enough. So the assailants were uh, eventually arrested, but their trial proved to be a sham. Facing a jury uh, packed sorry, with... Real quick. Yeah. Isn't, uh, isn't Michael Parenti also one of the probably the foremost figures speaking out, saying that, like, Ruther was assassinated, even to this day? Like, I, I mean, yes. who else has even left putting that forward, you know? Us. Yeah. Huh? Us and Michael... Look at this. Us and Hell Michael yeah, Parenti. buddy. Hell yeah. <laughs> Ooh, okay. It's kind of a forgotten battle, man. Like, like y'all said, you didn't even know who Walter Ruther is before we brought the topic up. I didn't know who he was before we started doing our podcast where obviously we get into like labor organizing in the auto industry a good bit. So like he's, and he's only come up tangentially even before this. I mean, this is really the first time we're taking a good hard look and that's why it's like, this is an important story again. Yeah, He comes up tangentially a lot because like, again, I'll take both sides. I have my criticisms of him. He, he fought the good fight, man. Like when capitalists are sending thugs into your house to abduct you, publicly yeah. you're probably doing something right yeah you're pissing off the right people yeah so and again i think this is an important story to tell now especially i don't know i hope you guys have some younger listeners maybe one of them you know worms their way into being a labor leader at some point and remember this fucking story okay walter ruther got his way he got to try this strategy the kind of strategy you hear from our less radical comrades and mm-hmm. uh we're gonna get a chance to see okay did it work mixed results so that's the point of the study let's kind of try and learn from this and say hey should we play the game by maybe different rules this next yeah. time it's a very important lesson on the inherent failures of reformism mm-hmm. yeah yeah i said that sarcastically as a joke yep. and then immediately realized yeah. I, was, I was dead nuts correct yeah dude yeah. <laughs> i mean <laughs> threw me off there <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> Wrong tone. Again, as my union is currently fighting for the 12-hour workday. Yeah. Really got a shit contract there. Yeah, we're probably going to reject it. I hope so. <laughs> but, but that being said, the, the contract we just offered did not limit the workday to 12 hours. It limited the workday to 15. Yeah. Bullshit. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Thanks, Walter. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So anyway, back into the middle of this kidnapping story we're in, or excuse me, the kidnapping already happened. The guys were put on trial. And so facing a jury packed with Ford sympathizers, the defense argued that Walter had staged the whole event as a publicity stunt. The state prosecutor, of course, neglected to mention that Ruther's organizing activities had made him a target at Ford. And, um, oh, you know, just so happened that both of the accused had uh, recently been working for Ford's security chief, our favorite villain, Harry <laughs> Bennett. Yep. I saw that coming, dude. I knew it had to be the case. I mean, you know, they just didn't think that was important information for this uh, trial in the American legal system. So the a jury acquitted both the men. Because Walter Christ was just making dude. it up. Wow. Yeah. Also, how dumb are these fucking guys that, like, they did break into... Like, while he's having a party. It's like, yeah. dude. Could dude. you get more witnesses if you tried? <laughs> but then it still didn't matter, because they didn't get acquitted. Like, you know, that's just how totalitarian capitalism is. Oh, I like that. 
Yeah, we got to start pushing that more. Totalitarian capitalism. I'm, I'm sick of hearing about totalitarianism, this and the, oh, yeah, 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 your system. That's your system. Shut up. So, yeah, the trial was a joke, which I can't imagine sitting through that. And, like, if you're Walter and his family, could you imagine how insane you would feel and how fucking gaslit? It's just like, they're like, oh, no, 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 that didn't happen. Yeah, so pretty, pretty fucking bad. Pretty yeah. terrifying. Of course, Walter didn't just make enemies outside the UAW. He managed to have quite a few adversarial relationships within the UAW, most notably with the far left contingent, so the communists. At a convention in 1938, Richard Frankenstein tried to, quote unquote, take advantage of the power vacuum created by the ouster of Homer Martin. And he was our favorite socialist Christian kind of maniac guy who might have been on the payroll of Harry Bennett in some way. Mm -hmm. He was kind of losing his mind a little bit. Yeah, that guy. Frankenstein, allied with the left faction made up of a lot of communists and other further left folks, he called for a 10-minute recess to work up a deal with the left faction. Now, I'm going to be quoting Walter here, um, yeah. and I would okay. just... Can we, can we address the absurdity that you are going to reconcile a group of leftists in 10 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> hold my beer i was just gonna let God. him try let's let's i'm just yeah i want to sit back and well see this. dude he gets so, 10 minutes with a bunch of leftists and there are now more factions than there were when he walked into the room like guaranteed <laughs> uh yeah and, and, becomes an egoist and it's just all done well apparently yeah. frankenstein isn't considered he's allied with the communists he wasn't one of the communists himself i guess so even more shocking that they worked out a deal of some sort. Now, this next part, I'm going to preface and say, I'm going to say this with authority, even though I don't have any actual evidence, but I'm going to go ahead and say this next part very much did not happen. At least not the way Walter Ruther says it happened. I guarantee it. I would bet my life that this did not fucking happen. Um, what's that one uh, Facebook tag group? This so didn't happen, it unhappened things that had happened. <laughs> I've never heard of that, but that's great. Dude, I love Facebook tag groups. I'm really not using Facebook much these days, but the tag groups are solid. I don't even know what that means. Oh, that's great. Cool. I just want to say, like, I'm over here cracking up, speaking of Facebook groups. There's this Facebook group that I have an absolute blast in called Ultras vs. Tankies, and oh, it's yeah, buddy. so much it's so much fun. It's literally just a bunch of ultras and tankies that just like get into flame wars. And I posted a poll on there. Just, yeah, I just posted a poll and said, what should we spend this month's excess labor value on? And made it an open poll for people to just put in their things. And number <laughs> number one is currently a second community toothbrush. Number two is <laughs> is toothpaste for the community toothbrush. Number three is bribe the clouds. Number four is sex with Stalin. Sex with Stalin DLC for Khrushchev Handy. <laughs> it's a extra okay. large, extra large stuff crust creature on pizza, armchair oil, hookers and blow, a bigger one, a bigger one bed later bedtime, and mom shut up. <laughs> it's just hilarious. All right. I'll just be cracking up, especially over the uh, toothpaste for the community toothbrush. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So some of those groups are a lot of fun. To be had. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to so, ask if this was like serious like debate or if this was all in good fun. And I feel like you've answered my question. Yeah. <laughs> it's about 20% serious. I do like that we have better jokes about ourselves than the righties do. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It's not even close. 
I mean, again, you can only debate with other leftists because as anyone else, you're like, oh, I'm going to have to catch you up on hundreds of years of debate for you to get any of my fucking jokes. Or they're just not What's operating in reality. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm talking about liberals, not even not even conservatives. Those, again, not even the same reality. <laughs> I've been very clear about my mental illness preventing me from operating in reality, and I'm still way more fucking grounded than liberals. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to this. I'm quoting Walter now. Uh, and again, I am perfectly comfortable saying this super did not happen. But here's his quote. Frankenstein and all the top commies gather to the back of the hall, and I went up to them and I asked, what are you bastards doing? And, and I didn't catch the name quite right here, but uh, I guess, and Kleinstone, I don't know, maybe, um, and Kleinstone said to me in front of all these guys, if the day comes when the party and interests require us to destroy the UAW, then we'll destroy the UAW. And I said, hey. brother... <laughs> <laughs> but hold on. And and I said, brother, count me on the other side of every fight, and I won't stop until we drive you bastards out of this union. So a little adversarial. A little bit. Uh, I guarantee you this conversation did not happen. Okay. Was there was say, no it sounds very much like every conversation you have with some employee after they got reprimanded by their manager and they tell you how it went versus how the manager tells you how it went. Oh yeah. And they're two <laughs> entirely different stories. Like, yes. yeah, I told that manager, fuck off, I'm not doing that stupid shit anymore. I don't care how many times you wrote me up, I don't need this fucking job. And you talk to the manager, he's like, Yeah, he was very apologetic. I uh, you know, yeah. he's not he's gonna do better. <laughs> yeah, and then of course this like I've been I'm trying to be fair with with Walter Ruther because I don't agree with everything he did here. But like, this is obviously the kind of story where like, not only did it not happen, you're just trying to impress people by explaining what a piece of shit you think you should have been. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like he's bragging about being on the wrong side of this argument, like really aggressively. Yeah. Oh, and and it's and here's the other thing. This sounds to me like the same every. It's it's amazing. Anytime I talk to a conservative, it's it's uncanny. Their parents or grandparents always grew up in Russia, Cuba, China. It's in, it's uncanny. Again, every conservative. And they hated it. Yeah, every single conservative. And you're just like, nah, that did not happen. And this is one of those times. The whole idea that if the day comes when the party interests require us to destroy the UAW, uh, no one said that. No one meant that. Why would that ever come up? Yeah. It's just... It's a good take, but there's no reason to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just this, Walter and Victor uh, were both plagued by uh, this idea, and you can see it in other people they've interviewed from these early UAW days. Anyone who wasn't on the communist side, which is everybody in all these documentaries, basically, they all talk about, oh, how the communists were automatons almost they were slaves to the party line they always listened to the party they didn't think for themselves these same tropes that we've seen a hundred bajillion times yeah Yo, and well, again, maybe it's not a trope maybe it's really easy to stick with the party line when the party line is like support fucking workers yeah well yes and, and so there is like a certain amount of support hey sometimes you're like okay hey i don't agree with everything but this is what the party wants to do i'm with it there is a big difference between that and how people portray it. And they were plagued by this idea that that's all these communists were. And it's insane to me that it's like, you guys like interacted with them regularly. Like, yeah. uh, 
I've never met a communist like that. Okay. And I, I'm an anarchist myself, but like, I have never met anyone who is just like a robot. Oh, I must do what the party, like, that's crazy. Uh, Mike either has something to say or he is saying that he's that guy. Um, well, yes, I am that guy, but that's what this whole podcast is about, is being that guy. You're supposed to robotically follow Marxism as a doctrine. That's the whole idea. But my defense of that would be that, like, if somebody is following literally the guidebook that Marx and whoever else since him laid out for how to actually win workers' rights and win material gains for proletariat, good. Fucking follow that handbook, and if that's what the handbook tells you to do, and that's what the party is telling you to do because they're interpreting the handbook, then fucking do it. And if the only criticism is like a bunch of fucking soy jacks telling you, oh, you're just doing what your historically successful pattern of overthrowing capitalism, you're just doing what that says to do. It's like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm going to continue to do that. And you're <laughs> following a fucking pattern yourself. Like You're literally on the rails of capitalism without realizing it. Like you're just doing whatever profit is telling you to do. You're doing whatever your shareholders tell you to do. It's like an NPC calling somebody else an NPC. It's like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. A good take, but like you can tell that what his actual meaning is is that like they were bland people with like just really uninteresting like they didn't have any conversation skill like whatever like what makes a person boring like mm. and no I don't believe that because a hundred percent all the communists I know are like the most off the rails like wild like fucking people because yeah. like it's it's impossible to be a communist in this system and not be losing your fucking mind at all times yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's again it's incredible that like. Walter, who was not a, he was not a dumb guy. All right. He does not belong in the same category as like, oh, dumb liberals or whatever. Okay. This is a guy who is actually quite smart and is putting workers first. Maybe not the same way I would or whatever, but like he's fighting the good fight. And to think that he encounters these people and this is what he thinks of them is just like, I genuinely cannot make sense of it. Like yeah. there is, I can, can you? It sounds like, genuinely, if I'm not just being a piece of shit about this, it sounds like the sort of rhetoric that you use to impress the moderates and right-wingers. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the only thing that that story is, is like... I'll beat the socialist, Jack. Well, which I think this, and I don't want to get, like, too into the weeds on this, but, like, I do think there is a real thing we have to consider when it comes to labor organizing specifically is this idea that... Well, you got to cover everybody, right? There's right-wingers in the union. There's people who yeah. might, like, again, there's not much political education, especially nowadays, you know? Should we be representing people like this in, like, unions? Is there a way around that? It's just, should we be appeasing moderates and conservatives while we're winning them fucking rights that they're going to vote away anyway? Yeah. Now, I get the idea that, like, hey, you're going to get them on their side. You're going to give them some class consciousness, through this struggle, but history seems to suggest that that doesn't always work. And so I think we have to really reckon, I don't think we're going to do it on this podcast, but we have to really think long and hard about how do we do that? How do we have that big tent and deal with fucking asswipes in your union who are racist, sexist, homophobic, you know, outright fascists in some case who are in your union? Like, how do you, what do you do about that? And I don't know the answer, but I'm hoping that someone listens to this and thinks thinks of a solution and puts it forth. I don't know, but it's a real problem. Yeah, I mean, you want to ideally just drag the reactionaries kicking and screaming into a better world and then have them converted because of that, but it just doesn't always work. And I mean, if you're not living in 2021 and seeing the extent to which people can literally deny the reality that is in front of their faces, like, 
this should be a lesson for you. Yeah. So on that note, listeners, you got some homework, I guess. I don't know. Figure this one out yeah. for us, please. <laughs> um, so anyway, that whole exchange definitely did not happen. Um, but Walter recounts it gleefully. He loves that this was a thing. Uh, jumping back in here, during the Second World War, uh, many of the unions, including the UAW, sort of voluntarily agreed not to go on strike in fear that it could harm the war effort. And probably a little bit more importantly, it could look bad to the public. So at the time, of course, there was rationing. The auto industry actually converted to making planes and tanks and shit. So striking at that time, you know, a lot of what unions are doing is relying on public support for what they're doing. And if you fuck with that, it can hurt you pretty bad. So the CPUSA party line during World War II was like, let's kick the fucking Nazis ass which is good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at the time, I mean, Walter made this like ambitious pledge to like, oh, no, no, let's get the auto industry to f- making 500 planes a day or something. Everybody called him crazy or whatever. And I don't know, they fucking did it. So he was in the news for that and like calling for, hey, no, we can actually do this because everyone was like, oh, is it feasible? How are we going to make all this shit? And he was kind of putting forth, oh, we, no, it can be done. Now, if you mm-hmm. force these car companies to do it, We'll just retool the machines. It'll work. And so he was right about that. So for what that's worth. It's as if top-down organization and planned economies can work when you just apply the political will to them. Yeah. But how will we know what to make without supply and demand? (laughs) (laughs) I am all for planned economies. I think they seem to work very well and for fairly obvious reasons. But I digress. So anyway, most unions were not being too militant at the time. Of course, there was sort of an unspoken agreement that we do this for you, and after all this shit's over, we're going to be rewarded, is the idea. Seems Um, legit. Capitalists are usually prone to rewarding hard work. (laughs) Famously. So most of the union members in these unions actually did seem to support this kind of temporary policy as well. Uh, Of course, when the war was over, workers felt like it was time to get what they were owed. So between the end of the war and through 1946, nearly 5 million workers were involved in some kind of uh, strike action. So this was like, it's, you know, the strike wave, the post-World War II strike wave, which scared capital, as you can imagine. So the UAW struck uh, at GM for 113 days. You know what, I, I come back to it in a minute. So we'll come back to this, but this is a pretty important strike in the way that Walter was putting forward the demands of the union. So one of the things that Walter was saying was, hey, let's do, I think, a 30% increase in wages. Um, And one of the things he suggested was making GM not raise the price of cars. So you give the workers a better deal, but you don't increase the price of cars. This was a way to handle that sort of inflationary effect, which is usually minimal, but it does happen, right? So you mm-hmm. pay workers more, the costs go up. Well, if the capitalist wants to maintain the same profit margin, which they shouldn't always do that, but if they do, they may have to raise prices. May, of course, it's not guaranteed, but Brandon, go ahead. That's so fucking much, because for any of my criticisms of, of Walter Ruther, that is explicitly like, no, we want your profits. You don't make the customers pay for this. We want the money that you're hoarding. That's Mm -hmm. sick. I love that. And so, 
again, of all the criticisms we can have for Walter, there was a lot he got right. And he was very close to getting the right point. I mean, no denying that. So we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but this is a noteworthy demand. Probably the first time in like labor history this is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's it's significant. And we should think about this in our own current situation a little bit. Anyway, so November 1945, demanding a greater voice in management, uh, GM would pay higher wages but refused to consider power sharing. So more essentially democracy at work. The union finally settled with an 18 and a half cent wage increase, but little more. The UAW went along with GM in return for an ever-increasing packages of wage and benefit hikes through collective bargaining uh, with no help from the government. So the idea was, all right, we're going to concede a little bit, but there will be increasing benefits over time. You know, again, a 113-day strike, how much longer can a union really hold out? It gets tough at that point. So we have to acknowledge the realities that we're not going to win every battle. That's why it's a struggle because sometimes you fucking lose. I refuse um, to acknowledge that reality. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so the forces of capital did not appreciate the new labor militancy. And so that's going to bring us into a discussion of the Taft-Hartley Act, which is landmark legislation at the time. And it fucked pretty much everything up. So the world we're living in today is thanks to the Taft-Hartley Act and thanks in part to the way unions dealt with the Taft-Hartley Act. Um, So we'll kind of see that going forward here too. Yeah, we refer back to our episode with the IWW comrades. I don't know the the number off the top of my head, but we talked a lot about the Taft-Hartley Act and how that kind of set the stage for where we've been at for the last almost 100 years at this point. So, Yeah, now I am going to quickly reiterate again for any listeners who might not be aware of it, we all talk about the Taft-Hartley Act and we reference it all the time. Oh, the Taft-Hartley Act sucked, it was awful. But what is it? How did it come about? You know, what was the deal with, with the whole Taft-Hartley Act? And that's kind of what I'm going to talk about here for a minute. So the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947, better known as the Taft-Hartley Act, is a United States federal law that restricts the activities and power of labor unions. It was enacted, and this is important, it was enacted over the veto of President Harry S. Truman, uh, becoming law on June 23, 1947. So it's pretty rare that a law is like, not signed by a president and then gets overruled by the Congress. Mm-hmm. But that's what happened here. So yeah, forces of capital are fucking strong. Yeah. Um, so this was overridden in the house 331 to 83. So it had even more support than the initial passing of the bill when it was overridden. And then in the Senate, it was 68 to 25. So that is a fucking overwhelming passage. And, you know, we can all say, you know, oh, there, it was this, it was that. But at the end of the day, the politicians here were very much in the pockets of the capitalists. That's who they were serving. It was very blatant. It was way less hidden than it is today. And it's pretty blatant today. But like, this was disastrous. Now, Taft-Hartley was introduced in the aftermath of a major strike wave in 1945 and 1946, like we just talked about. Though it was enacted by uh, the Republican-controlled 80th Congress, the law received significant support from congressional Democrats, so roughly about 50% uh, of Democrats at the time, many of whom joined with their Republican colleagues in voting to override Truman's veto. The act continued to generate opposition after Truman left office, but it remains in effect. The Taft-Hartley Act amended the 1935 National Labor Relations Act, which we talked about before, 
prohibiting unions from engaging in several quote unquote unfair labor practices. Mm. Uh, among the practices prohibited by the Taft Hartley Act are jurisdictional strikes, wildcat strikes, solidarity and political strikes, secondary boycotts, secondary and mass picketing, closed shops, and monetary donations by unions to federal political campaigns. So this is coming from like Wikipedia. So take a grain with salt here. And some of these terms, I think, get a little bit mixed up. But I wanted to go through quickly what these actual restrictions mean and like mm. what these things that are being limited are. Uh, so a jurisdictional strike is a concerted refusal to work undertaken by a union to assert its members right to a particular job assignment and to protest the assignment of disputed work to members of another union or to unorganized workers. So this is like when the union is our responsibility is to take care of this. And when you take that job away and you give it to, say, the unorganized workers in the plant or, say, a different union that is more maybe amenable to capital. Right. So when you take away this job, you mispronounce corrupt. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, so basically this is where a company says, oh, you're too fucking difficult to deal with. So we're going to give this responsibility to this other group of workers and a union in response may go on strike. And the Taft Hartley act actually makes that illegal to do this. So companies can kind of just take away responsibilities whenever they want. You said this actually had the blessing of Truman. No, no. So actually so Truman vetoed this and it was overridden okay. by a huge margin which rarely happens. So actually Truman gets some credit on this. He, and he, he, I like, there's video of him being like, yo, this is appalling legislation. Like this is fucking crazy. And yeah, yeah they overrode but, it. But let's go drop this bomb on Japan real quick. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like let's, let's, let's not pat Truman on the back too hard as he fucking flattens yeah. Nagasaki. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. No, I don't want to talk too much out of my ass right now. But didn't didn't a judge in one of the places where uh, John Deere is currently picketing rule that they're like we're only allowed to have like so many picketers on the line, and it was like an abysmally small amount relative to like what it could be. Yes, and that's actually one of the things that the Taft Hartley Act does um, go after as well is like they kind of restrict who can picket and how much picketing can be done because of course it looks bad when you have a fuckload of people picketing your company's labor practices it looks really bad so yeah. limiting the, the amount of that that can be done huge win for companies so that thing that strikers were having to deal with last week was also a thing that they were having to deal with 80 years ago yes yes now i'm Thank not, you, I'm not a legal expert yeah i'm not <laughs> thanks walter mm -hmm. Yeah, so the Taft-Hartley Act is alive and well, and it is still a huge problem for us. Now, one of the other things it makes, quote-unquote, illegal is a wildcat strike. A wildcat strike is a strike action undertaken by unionized workers without union leadership's authorization, right? So there wasn't an authorization vote. It's not official, but workers go on strike anyway. It's technically illegal, but, like, what that really means in, like, in reality is workers do not have the kinds of protections they have from going on strike normally. Mm -hmm. um, so they can be fired a lot more. They can lose pay. They, they're not eligible to take from the strike fund of the union, things like that. So it's way riskier and 
has real consequences. I love it. It's saying that the absolute most democratic form of strike is illegal. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that yeah. was kind of, we had done an episode with some um, IWW chapter heads and several months back now, and that was kind of their big argument of like the IWW versus your traditional unions is they're not restricted to those same laws because the, you know, they're, they're not like the same, I guess, uh, technical union, like, like these larger ones, so they can pretty much do whatever they want. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, I know they, they've kind of got like, they've got a dual membership kind of thing too yeah. going where it's like, mm -hmm. which I think is hugely important. And we should yeah. think about stuff like that. Like mm -hmm. we'll get to later, I think in the next episode, when we talk about the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, there could be some mix of like more radical unions, but like being a member of say one union, that's a big union, but also being a member of a more revolutionary union too. That's, that could be something that we look towards in the 21st century, I think. Yeah. And that, that's the, like, that's one of their biggest like arguments is literally like they refuse to get rid of the most powerful tool that the unions actually have. Yeah. So one of the other things um, this goes into is, what they're calling solidarity action, also known as secondary action, a secondary boycott, or a sympathy strike. A lot of fucking terms they're mixing up here, whatever. This is essentially like where union members actually strike on behalf of someone else who is aggrieved. Uh, this is an industrial action by a trade union in support of a strike initiated by workers in a separate corporation, but often the same enterprise, group of companies, or a connected firm. So... In Australia, Latvia, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, and the United States and UK, solidarity action is illegal, uh, and strikes can only be against the contractual employer. Germany, Italy, and Spain have restrictions in place that restrict the circumstances in which solidarity action can take place. The term secondary action is often used with, different, with the intention of distinguishing different types of trade dispute with a worker's direct contractual employer. So thus, a secondary action is a dispute with the employer's parent company, its suppliers, financers, contracting parties, or any other employer in another industry. Wait, so did, is you say, did you say Germany, Italy, and Spain? Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so the countries that are like coming down hardest on secondary strikes are the ex-fascists? Well, the Quinsen boys are back so, in town. Hold on. Well, hold on. So, <laughs> the gang like, is back are, together. You're, you, mis, you misheard that. They are technically less restrictive. So oh uh, Germany okay. and Spain have restrictions in place that restrict the circumstances in which these strikes can happen. But the much longer list of countries, including the U.S. and the U.K., uh, it's just straight up illegal. You can't do it. So, ah, they learned a valuable lesson on optics. Can, uh, I, can I just say, Connor, it's like yeah. really rude of you to like shit on Brandon's really good joke with your facts. Like it was, <laughs> that's a great joke. You just like dumped on it with your your reality. It's... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just got like all these notes and shit, and I'm just like, wait, no, hold on. It's got to be this. <laughs> no, but like, I'm laser focused here. The the real joke is actually buried in there though, and it's not as laugh out loud funny because a lot of the fascist countries actually learned a genuine lesson about taking care of their people a little bit because otherwise like if, if you let things get too bad you fall to communism or fascism and if you want to maintain a nice 
moderate capitalist democracy, quote unquote democracy, then you got to keep the people like fed and somewhat happy and, and give them the illusion of control. And uh, so they learned that lesson and we're like, you know, we're, we're going to let you guys have this one. Just don't get too uppity about it. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. Well, and so when we're thinking about like secondary actions like this, this means Brandon, other unions. Brandon critically supporting fascists, by the way. Hundred percent <laughs> not. Nope. Um, so, like secondary actions like this are incredibly important. So, like, let's say you're in a smaller union, and you know you're you're fighting against this company. It's not a big fucking deal to them. But if you can start shutting down other parts of the of industry, right? Whether they're completely different or uh, maybe the same company or whatever, you start to really hurt them. And of course, that's why it's illegal now. Well, what I found actually most striking about this uh, provision in the law is that it makes it so that you can only strike against the contractual employer, right? So when your company, say, I don't know, Procter and Gamble owns 50 different fucking subsidiaries, you cannot strike against Procter and Gamble or any of the other subsidiaries. You can only go after whatever that little Colgate toothpaste. It's it, it's like ah yes, the communal toothpaste. <laughs> Back it's to very that. much like the recent thing. I think it was Johnson and Johnson who had been sued for putting asbestos in their fucking talcum powder that you know people were using yep. all the time, like on babies and shit. And what they did was they legally shifted the responsibility to a subsidiary company and then like defunded it or closed it up. They basically just like shuffled some documents and now they're absolved they just got away with it they got away with the scot-free no problem that's i mean that's what limited liability um is in the limited liability corporation it's that kind of move and it's this idea that like i get from people who defending capitalism all the time oh well the owner took all the risk and did that there's no risk yeah literally none a limited liability corporation means they cannot be held personally responsible so they can't go to jail they can't go to whatever because of the corporation's actions and when you have all these little subsidiaries you, again they're shirking the responsibility off of themselves and so there is no risk mm-hmm. not to the company not to the individuals running the company but the workers the workers take a great deal of risk they risk but what about like that capitalist like putting all of their own parents money into that business that's just basic economics right there well, it's also basic economics, of course, when they get to just borrow that money, right? So instead of putting <laughs> your parents' money, you put that money in the stock market and then you leverage it for a loan, right? And then you're borrowing money at a low interest rate to fund that company. So poor people, what are you doing? Just try harder. Then you short that company because you know what's coming. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a wonderful system we live in. Actually, have, um, Connor, I have an on-topic and serious question while we're talking about Taft-Hartley. Sure. I, I love to pretend that I know more than I do, but I, I can't do that here. I don't know a whole lot about Taft-Hartley, and I feel like a couple of episodes ago, you said something about how like it wasn't entirely Walter Ruther's fault that a lot of the communists got run out of the UAW because it has something to do with the Taft-Hartley Act. Did I misunderstand yes. you then, or are we you getting into not. that? So we're heading into that right now. I'm, I'm just kind of going through some of these, like, oh, it bans all this stuff. But like, oh, what is this stuff that it fucking bans? But I want to be clear. We're going to go into the purging of the communists. And 
Walter is both responsible and not responsible for it. I mean, it, it's literally like it's very complicated, but Walter used the Taft-Hartley Act to his advantage to get rid of his adversaries in the Union. However, by the letter of the law, he was protecting the Union, too. So it's really like it, 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 we'll get into it, but it's fucked up. <laughs> um, so, again, one of the other things that it, it bans is mass picketing and stuff. So it's a form of protest where people called pickets or picketers congregate outside a place of work or a location where an event is taking place. Often this is done in an attempt to dissuade others from going in, so convincing people not to cross the picket line, but also to draw public attention to the cause. So the Taft-Hartley Act limits like who can picket. So like you can't just like call for like, oh, hey, members of all these other unions come show solidarity with us and picket with us. So like instead of having... 30 people picketing, maybe we can have 2,000. The Taft-Hartley Act makes that illegal. Again, favoring companies. It's uncanny, really, how, how much this favors companies, and the workers get nothing from this legislation that, again, was overrode a fucking veto. It was yeah. so goddamn popular in the House and Senate, and it gave nothing to workers. In fact, it hurt them entirely. It, it's yeah. truly amazing. So... The other thing is the NLRA also allowed states to enact right-to-work laws banning union shops. And a union shop is basically where any new employee has to be in the union. So that's a union shop. And then there's the closed shop. So what a closed shop is where everyone has to be in the union after a certain amount of time. Now, I'm sure there's some like real legal distinction there, but they seem pretty close to the same damn thing to me. But right-to-work laws, of course, and this is where they come from, it's the Taft-Hartley Act, the right-to-work laws mean that these workers can choose not to be in the union or can choose, if they have to be in the union, they can choose not to pay dues or whatever if the state enacts a right-to-work law. So enacted in the, during the early stages of the Cold War, the law required union officers... Oh, this is the part uh, about the communists. So the law also required union officers to sign non-communist affidavits with the government. So like, the law made it illegal for communists to hold leadership positions in unions. Whole cloth. That was in the law. Now, of course, we supposedly have some kind of constitution that's supposed to make stuff like that blatantly not allowed, but uh, of course... Passed anyway. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and this is the part that I was talking about. So technically, in order to save the unions, they, they couldn't have communists in them at all. And they had to sign affidavits affirming that they were, in fact, not communists. Now, I would argue that there is some way to deal with that that is not what actually happened. But we'll, we'll, let's go a little deeper here. So this part of the law was struck down by the Supreme Court in 1965. And I, this is me postulating here, but this could have been challenged much, much earlier in the Warren Court. So the Warren Court is largely considered the most liberal Supreme Court in U.S. history. Um, so the Warren Court was the one that gave us pretty much every reasonable law, civil rights legislation, all of that. This is the Supreme Court that upheld all of that and struck down all kinds of really awful fucking shit. It's not like something that is beyond praise, like, oh, so praiseworthy. It's still a capitalist institution, but like this was, this is like the new deal of the Supreme Court. 
if you want to think about it like that. As you were saying that, I'm just picturing that Monty Python image with, the, with him sitting there looking up saying, ah, a gift from the gods. <laughs> I was trying to think of some kind of Elizabeth Warren joke. I wanted to know like, who, was the, uh, who was Judge Warren that was so, I don't know, cool that like, we got some stuff actually done in the Supreme Court at that point. Okay, so this was Chief Justice. I'm just sitting here Her- thinking that if they told me I couldn't be a communist, I'd be like, cool, suddenly I'm an authoritarian anarchist. I know. <laughs> well, and, and that's kind of my point is like, okay, I'm not a communist now. I'm a communalist or, or whatever the fuck. Who cares? You could call yourself a fucking polka dotted pony for all I care. Yeah. I'm a non denominational Marxist. There you go. So that wasn't done. And of course, that is to Walter's benefit or. I don't even want to say his benefit, his perceived benefit. So anyway, this was the Supreme Court led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, uh, the most, quote, liberal court in history. And this was from 1953 to 1969. So remember when I said this could have been challenged much earlier, as we can see, like even today, we know like we're currently we're in a very conservative Supreme Court. Like, you know, ahead of time. All right. Let's let's not pretend that they're not partisan hacks. That's what these fucking justices are. It is a political fucking game. Um, I mean, it's a political you, institution. For historical context, when you say this could have been challenged a lot earlier, the early side of that is like when we were straight up trying communists in the House Un-American Activities Committee and shit. Like, yeah, the fifties were not a friendly time towards anyone left leaning. And no, of course not. I'm wholly unsurprised that it did not go challenged in that time. Well, but here, here's the thing: had this gone in front of the Supreme Court. Again, I'm not a legal expert, but I actually suspect that not only this provision, but several others of the Taft-Hartley Act could have been struck down. On their face, they are blatantly unconstitutional. Like, you just look at them and you're like, how the fuck did you make secondary strikes illegal? But that's what I'm saying. Like, nothing about the, the HUAC era of America was concerned about the Constitution. It's that thing where you yell about the Constitution while you do wildly, like, hypocritical shit. Well, that's, that's every era of of America like that is 100% but like the Warren court actually I won't argue that point yeah (laughs) but if there was any time that this could have been struck down it was during this time very clearly and it's not even close like the Warren court had the incentive right to throw this out and they had the means to get rid of this they very easily could have again maybe maybe there's some legal expert listening who would tell me I'm wrong uh, and that's very possible. But that is my belief on it from what I at least know, the very little I do know about the Warren court. Now, if the labor leaders of the time, uh, like Walter, wanted to bring a case, uh, I think they could have. And of course, Walter definitely did not want communists in the union, right? So we've already established that. So he used this to his advantage to purge communists from the union. Now, I raised the question, you know, what other parts of the law could have been struck down? Again, it's honestly hard for me to imagine what parts could have stood up to scrutiny under this particular Supreme Court. How do you make picketing illegal? If supporters wanted to go and picket, how could you possibly make that illegal? It's absurd. Vagrancy laws. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you name it, they'll find a way. But this is probably the one time in history where this would not have stood up. And they did not take that opportunity. And so now we are still stuck living with this law. And for that, I'm, I'm going to unfortunately have to say thanks, Walter, because yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think this is one of his biggest mistakes. Now, 
I also want to note, like, again, we could have found some smart ass way to dodge this, like signing non-communist affidavits and like people calling themselves anything else. Like there is, it's just your fucking word on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. There was a way to resist this. And there was probably a way to resist this nonsense in a way that actually helped the union look better in the public eye. And just none of it was seized upon. None of it. And so this was a huge loss. And this hurts us. You'll see the damage this does as we go forward, but it hurt us then and it hurts us now. We can't let our personal political ambitions get in the way of like, really harmful shit uh and and that's kind of what happened here Sirwin, what's up i agree but i also don't want to diminish the value of how much it took for some of these people to take their stance and refuse to like give up their communist affiliation like there there's some honor in that is it worth the outcome i don't think so but to be, uh, no, to be okay. To be fair, I, I I would like to point out. I'm sure some of them actually would have done that. But uh, remember, Walter wanted them out of the fucking union. So like, yeah. you know, he was up in leadership. They were going to be gone at some point, even if they did renounce their whatever. With Walter wielding power here, there is a good chance that they could have been kicked out anyway. Yeah, uh, but again, yeah. credit to them if they didn't. And whatever that says, I mean, these were hard times for yeah. sure. They can, I mean, they it's always been hard the, to be a communist here, but yeah, I mean, they couldn't see the future. It it sucks. It yeah. played out the way it did, but I, I still think that there's honor and kind of holding your ground like that. No, absolutely. I, I, no, I think as, as much as we're discussing right now, like how you would just say, well, actually I'm, I'm not a communist. I'm this other thing in my heart of heart. I know that I would lose my job that day. <laughs> <laughs> like, sure. Could I do this thing? Yes, but would I also see that piece of paper and just become irate and say, fuck you, you can't tell me what I can be? Right. That's, that, that's the day I get escorted off the property by fucking Pinkertons or some shit. Yeah. I will cause 80 years of political backtracking today, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> like, I actually think that the, the, like, the 20s into the like, early 50s is like, a wildly fascinating time in the history yeah. of American communism. They, they weren't really like tanky as the way that you would think of them now, but those motherfuckers did not back down, man. They took their beatings and kept on organizing and kept fighting. Yeah. And like, yeah, when, what I know about the party at that time, fuck no, none of them were going to sign that shit. All right. Well, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a bad time. So, all right. Before joining the democratic party, which is not a great, not a great sentence. Uh, before joining the Democratic Party, Ruther was a member of the Socialist Party of America, one of the several socialist-ish parties. Um, although Ruther always denied it, some, including J. Edgar Hoover, one of our other favorite villains, have suspected that at one time he was a member of the Communist Party. On this subject, Ruther said in 1938, I am not and never have been a member of the Communist Party, nor a supporter of its policies, nor subject to its control or influence in any way. Did this earn him any friends? Nope. No, it did not. <laughs> also, like, so, like, there's no speculating whether or not somebody was or was not a communist in that era. The FBI had that shit on lock. There is thorough documentation on every communist mm -hmm. of import. Like, if you attended well, a meeting, it was known. Well, and that's the thing. So... I mean, he was a socialist. So, I mean, by the, on that list, he had a file and J. Edgar Hoover 
personally thought that Walter was a communist or socialist, whatever, the same fucking thing. To, to reactionaries, they're all the same. So yeah. uh, I, I'm just like, I'm just saying that like anybody in power saying like, well, I think he's a communist. It only has the capacity to be a bad faith argument. Like, oh, yeah. I've, I've read some of the documents I've been reading. Um, shit, I forget the name of the book now. The FBI and the, the folk singers or something. And oh, I like, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, they go in depth, uh, like, because specifically Woody Guthrie is, is a, a good person to know because the FBI had detailed files on Woody Guthrie having attended meetings but having never formally held membership in the Communist Party and the reasons why he supported the party and the reasons why he had never been a member. Funny enough, it was because they didn't want him. Yeah, so, like, the FBI was thoroughly documenting, like, every fucking communist of note in America, if not every communist, period. Like, it was the yeah. 30s and 40s, so it was, it was a harder thing to keep tabs on every single living soul. But, like, they did the footwork to do that. If Ruther had ever been a communist, if he had gone to a fucking meeting where he had walked outside and said, like, well, you know, some of those ideas are pretty all right or whatever, they would know that inside and out, upside down. Yeah. So it is only in, in bad faith that somebody would levy the argument against him that he not that, you know, anybody in the government is beyond making a bad faith argument if it means like, well, crushing an opponent. But still, I mean, so it was at the time it was bad faith always, because even for actual self-proclaimed communists, it was still a, an insult lobbed at them. Oh, they're a communist, you know. So this was a common thing at the time. And Walter used that himself. You know, he called his opponents, communists and scaremongered about them. And that was to have them lose influence within the union. He was part of the anti-communist kind of fervor at the time. Now, after the CIO elections in 1948, the CIO purged 11 radical unions. Walter even pushed for the decertification of these unions, such as the Farm Equipment Workers Union in Peoria, Illinois, which had organized the Caterpillar plants. So he directly had a part to play in like he was pushing for decertification of other unions within the CIO. So again, he was very against the communists and he, he destroyed a lot of union power because of that anti-communism. Now to you just made me cool off on Walter Ruther even more, but you made me really curious about 11 radical unions. Well, remember the so last union was too radical to stay on board. Well, so remember, this was um, the CIO, and the CIO was the more radical of the Union Federations. Of course, the alternative was the American Federation of Labor, and they were right-wing by comparison to the CIO. And they were right-wing by comparison to the UAW. I mean, by a lot. Um, that's, that's what so, I'm saying, though. Like, if the AFL kicked out 11 unions for being too radical, or wait, did you say it was AFL or CIO? CIO. Okay, so if, if they were the radical Congress of Unions, then they still kicked out 11 for being too radical. Yes. And that rules. And I don't want to know more about those 11 unions now. <laughs> I know. Yeah, they're, you'd have to do some digging because, like, I tried to, like, briefly look into it. I was like, all right, this is beyond the scope of what I can get into. But, yeah, pretty big, important thing. Now, so let's kind of turn here to internal union stuff. Returning to the uh, post-war GM strike that we talked about, and I said I would get into a little bit more, Ruther proved that he would be a different type of labor leader when he led a strike challenging GM to increase workers' wages by 30% uh, without increasing the price of their new cars. 
Worker pay had been restricted during the World War II, and Ruther sought to get them a raise, but not at the cost of increased inflation. Historically, when workers won a pay increase, the company would pass on the expense to the consumers. Now, a government study at the time found that GM could easily afford this concession, that, you know, this raise could come out of increased productivity alone, right? So they had the profit margin to do this, and they were one of the most profitable companies in the world if not the most. So they did do an actual, like, whatever it was, congressional budget office or government account, whatever, one of these fucking offices did the study and found that, oh yeah, GM, not only could they afford it, they could easily afford it. Mm -hmm. So GM, of course, refused the pay increase, and after a 113-day strike, the side settled on an 18.5-cent hourly raise. Ruther's bold collective bargaining leadership in this strike catapulted him into the union's top position. It was kind of a loss kind of a, I mean, but it was, it was an important thing mm-hmm. um, during the strike wave to happen. That's how that went. Uh, on March 27th, 1946, Ruther won the election and became the president of the UAW in a very close race. Um, so he went from like, you know, just being in leadership and on the board to actual president. Um, now he defeated the incumbent UAW president, RJ Thomas, who I believe was a communist, by a mere 124 votes out of almost 9,000 votes. So this was a very, very close election. Now, the new UAW president pledged his vision of a labor movement whose philosophy is to fight for the welfare of the public at large. This is undeniably good. Uh, One of his first acts as president was to fight to integrate the... I don't know why this is... Oh, Brandon. I just want to say I long for a fucking world where the socialists marginally went out against the communists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Like coming from where we're at right now, that just sounds like a dream. Seriously. Yeah. We got a long way to go, but uh, what is that quote from Lenin? There's, uh, there's years where weeks happen and weeks where years happen or whatever. Uh, something know. like that, yeah. It's yeah. one of my favorite Lenin quotes. There are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. That's yeah. it. That's the one. Yeah. Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> it is starting so, to feel that way. I mean, yeah, shit's popping off. Now, I don't know why this is the most relevant. I got this from Wikipedia, so, you know, take it for what it is. Um, I have no idea why the American Bowling League has anything to do with the UAW, but for some reason, uh, Walter uh, was fighting to integrate the American Bowling League, which had previously excluded black bowlers. He was a new kind of leader who viewed the labor movement as an instrument for social change. So very important. Walter was, in fact, anti-racist and was fighting for integration and much better, you know, equality for black workers. Respect. But I will say this is not a new type of leader. This is what was just historically a communist leader. Well, again, he wasn't a communist. I know. Um, That's what I'm saying. Like, co-opting the idea that the communists had at the time. (laughs) This Um, is not a new type of leader. This has been around for decades. He just relabeled it. Sure. I mean, but at the same time, for the days, credit where credit's due, this was a good thing. There were still problems of racism within the ranks of the UAW, and... There still are. Well, yes. We'll definitely be talking about that in the future, but... Um, Walter Ruther was fighting on that front, at least to some extent. Now, after Walter won the top position, the communists in the union began to fight back. They began a nasty campaign against Walter, as they should. 
mm-hmm. um, sort of. Although we better learn from this too because it didn't end well. So they used, you know, the company newspaper and uh, some of the other newspapers locally to argue against Walter's leadership. They called him names like the boss's boy to imply that he was too cozy with company management uh, and wasn't fighting hard enough. This isn't really true, um, although he may have been a little less militant than the communists. I mean, the guy was pretty adversarial with the companies, although, I mean, at the time, maybe wasn't adversarial enough. Right. We always got to push left or whatever. If I recall correctly, and I'm not shit talking here, that was not necessarily true at all at this time, but becomes a lot more true later on. Which is a problem with unions in general. Like labor leaders tend to get more conservative over time, partially because of their own power, partially because they have real pressures on them. Like they've got to deliver gains for working people. And sometimes that means they're negotiating, right? You don't always win those negotiations. Sometimes you're like, oh, I got to take this shittier deal now to get a better deal later, whatever it is. However, they rationalize it. They tend to want to avert strikes. They tend to take the deal they can get, right? So it's, it is a problem of leadership in general. um, and, And something that I think needs to be addressed in labor unions in some way or another. Now, it's hard to blame the communists for trying to fight back against Walter, obviously. He deserved it in a lot of ways. But he did have a lot of support from the workers, and he did deliver at the bargaining table. He demonstrated his value in organizing effective strikes. It was kind of the whole point of the last episode. Motherfucker knew what he was doing, okay? And he was good. No doubt about that. So you really couldn't claim that he wasn't down for the cause. And so the attacks coming from the left kind of fell flat because of that. Now, they made communists look bad, and Walter was more than happy to fight back against that. So uh, Walter emerged from this fight victorious. So we'll have the opportunity to kind of examine Walter's long-term strategy and see how we might learn from that in the 21st century labor struggle here. But like, he and the communists had it out. He won this fight. The workers supported Walter's vision, and partly because of Taft-Hartley, the communists were on the losing side here. This was a huge setback for them. And so Walter kind of takes the reins and leads the UAW into uh, the 50s and 60s until his death. What was the quote about this in regards to uh, the blow dealt to the Communist Party in America? This was the greatest, uh, I I don't know the quote, but this was the greatest setback for communists in the labor movement in the 20th century. Yeah. So, yeah, this this hurt. And I get it. They attacked Walter, and I'm not saying they were wrong to do that. I don't know what I would have suggested otherwise. But unfortunately, those attacks fell flat. And part of that is because the motherfucker was good at what he was doing. I mean, it's like it's hard to say, like, oh, this guy's a fucking he's in the pockets of the bosses when that's just not. Yeah, it, it, you can look at it and be like, I'm sorry, that's just not true. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> our attacks got to be good, but like, and I see this, you know, you see it, go to Twitter. You'll know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) It's just, you're like, I'm look, you can attack somebody, but like, you you can't be like, this person's a sellout when they clearly have not sold out. Right. Yeah. Now winning the presidency in the UAW didn't just make Walter a target for communists within the UAW. Uh, He had far more dangerous enemies in organized crime violent capitalists, and violent elements of the U.S. capitalist government, such as the FBI and the CIA. So, yeah, no winning here. 
<laughs> that charting that anti-communist path can be not great because then you've just got more enemies. It's, again, making you no friends. In April 1948, Ruther was nearly killed by a shotgun blast fired through his kitchen window. He suffered chest and arm wounds and never recovered the full use of his right arm and hand. So for the rest of his life, he was fucked up because he got shot with a fucking shotgun. Yeah, just in so, his kitchen, like through his window. Like that was, there's a couple times where this guy got viciously fucking attacked, like in his own home. And it's like, yeah. like you said earlier, you know you're pissing off the right people when you do that. Yeah. And, and so he's got enemies. I, we don't know who did this shooting. Um, this could have been the mob, right? Because they had union shit going on too. This could have been violent capitalists. This could have been anything. But someone tried to kill him. And you think about what, again, we, we shit on Walter a lot. And I think for good reason. But you got to understand, this guy was putting his life on the line. And like his family was scared. He had bodyguards all the fucking time. And yeah. that wasn't always enough. Shitting on him is good praxis. Like, <laughs> call him out for the good stuff he did, but also call him out for the bad stuff he did. Yeah, it's critical yep. support. Yeah, there you go. And that's, I think that's what this study's about. Now, then we come to uh, a year later, Victor, Walter's brother, was also shot at. Victor got it a little bit worse than Walter, unfortunately. An attempt on Victor Ruther's life uh, the following year suggests outright complicity by law enforcers. Big surprise. Victor began receiving calls from the Detroit police telling him that neighbors, whom the police refused to name, were complaining about his dog barking, which was strange because they had never complained about his dog barking in the past. In fact, the dog had occasionally barked at night. When Victor would go to investigate what the dog was barking at, he would see a parked car start up and speed away. After police issued a quote-unquote final warning, the family reluctantly gave their pet to some friends. The very next evening, Victor was shot in the head as he sat reading in his home. The bullet took out his right eye and parts of his jaw. A neighbor who volunteered a detailed description of the assailants to the police uh, was never contacted for follow-up questioning and began receiving anonymous phone calls warning him to shut up. Two days after Victor was shot, the U.S. Senate unanimously adopted a resolution requesting the FBI to investigate both attacks. U.S. Attorney General Tom Clark, the governor of Michigan, and the UAW itself also demanded an investigation. Although Attorney General Clark, FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover's putative boss, pointed to possible violations of the Fugitive Felon Act and several other federal statutes, Hoover refused to move, claiming a lack of jurisdiction because no federal laws had been broken. Neither the FBI nor the Detroit police followed up on any of the leads uncovered by UAW private investigators, nor did they come up with any of their own. No corporate officials were ever questioned. Board strongman Harry Bennett, one of our favorite villains, who had been implicated in the 1938 attempt against Walter, was never interrogated. In fact, Bennett was Hoover's golfing buddy and was considered a valuable ally who gave the FBI access to his files on quote-unquote communist activity, mm -hmm. consisting mostly of dossiers on labor activists. <laughs> Man, so, I, bet you, I bet you they turned up a whole lot of shit on their friends, you know, attacking these guys in their house. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this case is really important. Like, one, Victor got it 
a lot worse than Walter did. I mean, he was. He did survive that shooting, right? He did survive that shooting amazingly. They did not know that he was going to, but like, I mean, he was he was fucking shot bad. I mean, Um, I think I've seen video footage of him being interviewed later on in life, and like, he looks better than you think he would, but he's still visibly like a little wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does look pretty good considering. I, I yeah. Like real good. He's got an eye and stuff. And I'm like, look, I don't, I'm not asking any questions about what that eye is, but like there is an eye. I would assume that he had a stroke, not that he had had half his face blown off. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this just goes to show you like at the time shit was dangerous. Like at its peak union power was funnily enough. What hurt us more than like assassinations, assassination attempts, and severe beatings uh, was simple fucking legislation. That's what killed us more than anything. And I think, I don't know what lesson there is to learn there, but like shit was real back then and it wasn't enough to stop the workers. But like the Taft fucking Hartley Act, unfortunately seems to be all powerful. It's one of those things. But um, yeah, this goes to, to show you, the police seemed to know ahead of time that this was coming. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's Harry Bennett or if that's mob connections. And there were many theories out there, but of course the police never followed up. They didn't really do anything. They knew about it. They let it happen. They had hoped, assuming he would be dead. But yeah, I mean, the police are the private force for capital. And so we can see that very clearly here. Now, of course, to the listeners, I'm assuming we're going to have some way of putting source material in like the videos we use the sources in show notes in some way. I do encourage you to check out Michael Parenti's video uh, interview about Walter Ruther and his life. He goes into detail on this shooting more so than we can do. But I mean, look, if you don't know Michael Parenti, uh, you're missing out. Go listen to Michael Parenti. But this interview, he, he does go through this shooting, the abduction attempt and the shooting on Walter in pretty good detail. And he goes through what we'll be coming up to in the next one or two episodes. Hopefully it's just one, but we'll be going through the plane crash that had a lot of, we'll call them anomalies. I just wanted to say, speaking of anomalies, is like, just to reiterate, the fact that a neighbor gave a detailed description of the assailants that shot Victor to the police and not only did they not come and question that person further and follow up with them, they also called the person and told them to shut the fuck up. Like, if you want to even just do the plausible deniability thing, you could just ignore that person and then not follow up with them, like not do your job and not take the reports and not take that description. But like, then also calling them, it's like, you're making it too Oh, obvious. to be fair, they were anonymous call. I mean... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That OPSEC is all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and so it's worth noting, I don't have a ton of my notes, but um, another one of our heroes that we had introduced in in the previous episode, Janora Johnson, uh, the woman who created the emergency brigades and the women's auxiliary, um, around the same time, she was beaten with a lead pipe in her bed by an assailant. Jesus. Um, I think, I, I think I came across something somewhere that, maybe implied that this was a mob related thing um and it may have had implications for these other shootings but i can't remember and i I don't want to uh, i don't want to go on the record saying any one thing um in particular but uh around the same time uh even janora johnson 
awesome organizer. Uh, she was beaten almost to death with a lead pipe in in her bed. So, I don't. Yeah, a really funny scenario in my head where like Victor's neighbor is at the police station, like describing the shooter to like a sketch artist, and then the sketch artist is done, and he's like, "No, you fucked up. You just described the detective investigating your case." Like, (laughs) (laughs) oh man, yeah, it's um, it seemed like it was pretty blatant. So yeah, I mean, they made some real serious fucking enemies, and apparently the police was one of them enemies. Obviously, all, uh, all it takes to be an enemy of the police is be a working person. So that was that was easy from the get go. Yeah. All right. I want to touch on one more thing, I think, before we uh, wrap this one up. Also, at the end of 1949, an attempt to bomb the UAW headquarters in Detroit was foiled by an anonymous call to a Detroit Times reporter. Uh, according to the caller, the explosive was planted when the big guy, by which they meant Walter, uh, was in the building. Investigations conducted by the police and FBI, uh, you'll be surprised to find, uh, did not produce any clues. Nah. <laughs> um, Why would it? So, I mean, I, I just want to demonstrate. I mean, this is the episode where we're showing this pattern that, like, they were attempted to be abducted and people were caught and the legal system did nothing. Yeah. We've got complicity from police and detectives. We've got complicity from bosses, whatever, you name it. There is a real pattern here of trying to fucking kill Walter, Victor, uh, and other labor organizers at this time. So, like, again, for all the criticism of Walter, I mean, he was pissing off the right people. And, I mean, so were any uh, labor leaders at the time. But shit was fucking real back then. So, I don't know. I think there's something to be learned from it. but. You know, and one of those things may be uh, one of those questions that I brought up earlier in the series, which I'll probably re- reiterate on the next episode, kind of that question about legality and how we should consider following the fucking law when look at the results and look at what I mean, look at the legal system we're working in here. I don't know what I'm I, I'm not suggesting anything in particular, but, you know, there may need to be a different way besides just following the letter of the law and striking in a way that the capitalists can tolerate. Um, Remember kids, it's only illegal to overthrow the government if you fail. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, anyway, that's about where I think we'll wrap up for now. I'd like to believe that I can wrap this whole story up with a nice bow in one more episode, but uh, I'm going to be real with you. Could be two. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, no pressure. I have no problem doing two three more episodes if you want like this is this is nothing but fun like i i I enjoy doing this so yeah don't feel any pressure to uh wrap it up any quicker than you feel you need to i'd rather go on all the tangents and the whole fucking point of it like we we are learning about this stuff and then we all react and it's it's fun to do i think this is a good way of just learning about these events because you feel like in real time we are hopefully asking the questions that listeners are having of the person who's giving us this information and then you know hopefully going down some rabbit holes but yeah i think uh just regarding your last point I think you did a good job wrapping that up and not saying anything actionable. So, uh, so props to you for doing that. I appreciate <laughs> That's, it. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm trying real hard. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, usually yeah. I'm the one who just says fuck it and, and makes the actionable claims. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hold on. So while we're on the, while we're on the topic now, see, I was going to wrap up, but now we're not going to, no. um, no, I'm just kidding. We're going to wrap up, but I did want to just point out a totally non-actionable thing that is good to know if you might be doing a paint job on your car in the future. Mm -hmm. I just wanted listeners to know if you maybe have to paint your car, 
you have to obviously sand your your car down and get remove the old paint. One of the quickest ways to remove the paint on your car is by using a chemical stripper. Okay, turns the paint into fucking spaghetti on top of your car. Great, easy to remove. You know, and paint is of course very very expensive to repair. You know, body shops very very expensive. But if you do it yourself. That chemical stripper will cut that time down quite a bit, and it works really fast. So all you have to do is put it onto the car, and it will burn through that fucking paint like butter. Connor, you don't have to be careful. You don't want to get the wrong message across. Be very careful to not get this on anyone else's car. Yeah, because yeah. it takes oh, oh, off just so quickly. And, yeah, no, no, don't like don't do this if you're like next to a squad car or something. Like, yeah, you know. don't hang around. Definitely, immediately leave. Well, yeah, the fumes are probably not great. You don't want to stand there. Right, a mask, right, right. It looks really cool when it bubbles up. Like, it is fucking cool. But very quick way to remove your paint. Uh, then you wipe it off, and then you sand what's left after that. But this is, if you're going to be painting your own vehicle in the near future, easiest thing to do, chemical stripper, which you can buy at most auto stores, including those that are far away from your home. Yeah, um, with cash. So, d- use yes. cash. Ca- cash is king. <laughs> Leave your cell phone at home. You don't want to get any of this stuff on, like, your metadata or anything like that? No. So, like, don't use Bitcoin? <laughs> yeah. I don't know you how know, you Connor, would. <laughs> yeah. Connor, I have a, I have a, a similar tip, uh, just a, a safety <laughs> tip. If you're, if you're changing the spark plugs on your car and you happen to, like, let's say, drop <laughs> one and shatter the porcelain part... <laughs> That little porcelain part, if it hits a car window, it'll shatter that window, oh, you know, it? even just with a little bit of force. So you want to be real careful with that porcelain. It's very I always hear that, but there's a lot of, like, things that will shatter a window if you throw it at it. Yeah, that are easier to get. Fair enough, it. yeah. Oh, no, all of us, I guarantee you, just have spark plugs laying around everywhere. I like landscaping bricks, personally, but... <laughs> Wait, Brian, just, um, just to be clear, I, I never knew the, the full thing. Do you have to actually break the porcelain off or do you just leave it on the spark plug if you were to drop it on a window by mistake? I mean, if you throw a, a spark plug at a window or I mean, drop a spark plug on a window, it, it would probably break it. But um, I think it's it's when it's broken, it uh, it has very sharp edges and that uh, does something. I'm not really sure. Yeah, if you were to vertically drop it, sorry, horizontally yeah. drop it. <laughs> Yeah, so we're full of fun tips. Tires from chips at night. Get your chemical stripper at a hardware store that's far away from you with cash. Yeah, full of tips over here. <laughs> Rental car agencies are full of free car parts. <laughs> I mean, I think those are all very useful, very practical, handy tips for anybody who's just interested. I mean, whether you're a car person, you can scrap a catalytic converter for a few hundred bucks and uh, uh, rental car agencies are just full of them. That's why I was really surprised that that doesn't happen more often. Like when you said that they don't have very heavy security, I'm like, that's surprising considering what happens with people's catalytic converters lately. That is a recent development. Like cats have always been stolen, but it's it's definitely been more egregious than normal lately. So I'm interested to see what comes of that. The ducks at the park are free. You can take them. The government doesn't want you to know this. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. All right, well, let's wrap it up there. Do you guys want to plug anything besides your uh, podcast? I mean, obviously, everyone should check out the Cars and Comrades podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe there. You can find it, I'm sure, anywhere podcasts are available, right? Yeah. Pretty and, sure. 
And you I'll should like listen it. to our podcast because it's good. <laughs> Very good. Brandon has changed his tune. Is that a better sale than normal for me? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was going to say, uh, just send us an email, carsandcomrades at gmail.com. If you agree, disagree, just want to, you know, rant or say that you love us or hate us or whatever. So our DMs are open. Nice. Yeah. Plus we're on, uh, you know, Instagram and uh, Twitter. And makes, yeah. makes one of us. <laughs> I will tag the Twitter, but I cannot respond to you, but it's at turn left to spot. Give me seven days. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> By the time this gets released, it'll be back on or, or shut back off. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I have a backup at turn left this one three one two if we need it. So we'll see by the time this comes out. <laughs> yeah, I guess I'll just uh, round out the rest of the plugs. Then for uh, Ward, I'll plug his uh, Instagram pages. That's Millennial Leftist and his backup Millennial Marxist. And then for Jaron, his website is jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. Cosper's Patreon is patreon.com slash C-O-S-B-E-R underscore. And for everything else, check out the link tree. That's link tree slash turn leftist. And uh, I'll just read off our Patreon subscribers real quick. So thank you, as always, to Van, Liquidated Bourgeoisie, Tasha, Sigmund Clark, Stewart, Pete, Colton, Elverbear, Allison, James, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Kay Frida, Not Drinking Water 69, James, sorry, James, Madboy, I should probably not give out people's last names or any kind of communist thing whatsoever. <laughs> uh, Madboy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jared, another Jared, William, Bro, you know Marks, David, Tristan, Devante, your mother, Charlotte, James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, John Bovey Fan 420, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhands, Male, Phil, Blackwater Janitor, and Jerry's. Thank you all. Sick. I think that's all I have. We can wrap it up there. Like I said, I think I think the next episode I can wrap it up, but I'm I'm going to be trying to go through the 50s and 60s, uh, and I know Brandon's going to have a chunk of drum stuff, um, mm-hmm. so it could be two. Okay, cool. That works. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, writing up all these notes and doing all this research and teaching us some more about Walter Ruther. I can't wait to uh, wrap it up, whether it takes another episode or two, and we will see everyone next time. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening, and thank you guys again for coming on. This was fun. Not a problem. It was fun. Thanks for giving me a reason to go out of bed today. Oh, yeah, guys. <laughs> Later. Peace out. Later. <laughs> Have a good one. Bye, Brian. Yep, Bye, adios. Connor. Yep, adios. Poverty. Half a million Americans at any given time are sleeping out under bridges and in gutters. Is that not violence to force a human being to sleep in the fucking street while while the rulers that dictate this entire system have four or five or six fucking houses? That's violence. If you ain't first, you're last. You know? There's a joke that circulated in Russia in 1992 after the first year of the free market paradise. And it went like this. Question. What did capitalism accomplish in one year that communism could not do in 70 years? Answer. Make communism look good. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit.
much of what has been said about communism in this country is simply not true. over anything having to do with ethics, morality, or human rights. America is a human rights violation in and of itself.